right. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Hebrews. We are back into our rhythm with the book of Hebrews, and Steve read a passage for us that might raise a number of interesting questions um, about Jesus, and we'll talk about that as we move along. But we are walking through the book of Hebrews, and we remember that the book of Hebrews is about, it is written to people that are under pressure. They are in a dominant culture that believes that Caesar is Lord and not Jesus is Lord. And so there's pressure on them to give up on their journey, that to take a break from saying Jesus is Lord and to take a break to stop at the rest stop on the side of the road and not make it to their final destination. And the book of Hebrews has various movements. The first movement is the movement into rest. We just finished that. We're starting today the movement into the holy place, the holy of holies in the presence of God. And the third movement in the book is the movement towards the city of God. But the, the pressure of the dominant culture is to say, hey, you're good where you're at. You don't need to keep going on your journey. You can take a break. And one of the things that we want to just make sure we're not doing is we're not, we have this great idea of, uh, can you imagine being on a family vacation and you're like, we're going to Yosemite, but you end up stopping at a rest stop in Visalia. You're like, where's Visalia? And I'm like, exactly, right? So you guys know, I love, Visalia's a wonderful city. And I don't want to disparage any of the cities in the Central Valley, particularly like Bakersfield or Visalia or anything like that, okay? Wonderful cities. But you don't want to stop. You don't want to stop on the side of the road because of the pressure that you just can't make it to Yosemite, right? And so the author of Hebrews says, look, I have some things I want to say about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished that is going to help you to not take a break, to keep going. To not want to turn around and go home, but to keep going to your final destination, the city of God, where you will receive grace and mercy and well-timed help. And so we have now, as we move into this second movement, this work in the book of Hebrews that um, understands, that wants to make the argument that Jesus is greater, hence our graphic behind us. For those of you bad at math, that the alligator always points to the bigger thing, right? So there, Jesus is great. Jesus is greater, okay? So greater than. And Jesus is, one of the ways that we understand the book of Hebrews, sometimes in the book of Hebrews, we get into the book of Hebrews, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, it's like this, where we get into a book and it feels like I've landed on a foreign planet. I've landed on the moon of Jupiter or something like that, and I don't understand where I'm at and what's happening. And the thought world of the book of Hebrews is different than our thought world. And the way the book of Hebrews thinks about the world is there is the heavenly realms, the realm of, this is where God lives, and then there's the earthly realms, and this is where we live. And in the Jewish mindset, these two places, these two worlds, these two, the cosmos would come together, the heavenly realm would come together, and the earthly realm would come up, and there would be a meeting place, a place where if you wanted to get from earth to heaven, you had to go through this spot, or go through essentially what they believed was the temple or there would be things, there would be gateways into the heavenly realms. And what you needed was you needed guides and mediators in order to make it through that place. If you wanted to communicate with God, commune with God, you had to go from the earthly realms to the heavenly realms. And God had provided various ways in which to guide that journey. In the in Hebrews 1.1 says, in the past, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions in many ways. In other words, God sent down 
revelation from the heavenly realms about himself. And that came, like we read in, in Hebrews chapter 1, came in the form of heavenly messengers like angels. And the author of Hebrews wants to make it clear that Jesus is greater than other heavenly messengers. Or God might have sent down the Torah from heaven, the law. And God wants to make it clear that what Jesus has done, what he has spoken in Jesus, is greater than whatever he sent down in the past. But at the same time, in order to go into the heavenly realms, oftentimes God would call people and, and positions and institutions from the earthly realms and raise them up as mediators. So you would have angels and things coming down from heaven, but you would also have people like Moses who would free his people from Egypt. He was raised up from among people. Or you might have, it went after Moses died, you have Joshua and he leads them into the promised land, but he's raised up as a leader. And so far, and we're going to see like there's temples and there's sacrifices, things raised up, holy places that all things from the earthly realms that God raises up, including high priests that we're going to talk about today. But if you're going to make it, from heaven into the presence of God into the heavenly realms, you need reliable guides and mediators. And the argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the greatest guide and mediator, greater than any other guide and mediator that God has raised up or sent down in the past. And so where we're at in this, we've already made mention by name, Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay, because Moses was a servant in the house, Jesus is a son. Sons are greater than servants. Servants are barefoot, and they only wear whatever they have, but sons have sandals on and rings on their hands and robes on their back, right? Jesus is a son, Moses is a servant. Joshua is another person, but Jesus is greater. Joshua tr brings the people into the land, but doesn't provide the rest that God has intended. This is all chapter 3 and 4. Jesus provides a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And we have one more person in, from that era that is mentioned, and that is the person of Aaron. Look at 5-4. In uh, chapter 5, verse 4, it says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So one of the things that we do as we read the book of Hebrews, and as we think about this framework of Jesus is greater than, whenever a name is mentioned, we're understanding that Jesus is greater than this name. Moses, Joshua, now Aaron. And Aaron was the first of all high priests. And so in Hebrews 4.14, the author's going to make it clear, Jesus is our high priest. He's not just a high priest. He is our great high priest. He's the greatest high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has not just been raised up from the earth, right? He has passed through the heavens. So it's, we, as we come to Hebrews and as we look at what's happening here, we're understanding that the author is continuing his argument that Jesus is greater from all of the people and institutions from the past that were good. God raised them up. God sent them down. These were good things. But in these last days, he has spoken in his son, Jesus. And as he says in chapter 2, we must pay closer attention now than what he has ever said in the past. We must pay closer attention to what God has said in his son, Jesus. So that's what the author of Hebrews wants to do. You guys are under pressure. What you need is you need to pay attention to Jesus. Chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And so we'll get there. We'll get to chapter 12. It feels like it's a long way off, doesn't it? Chapter 12 feels like a long way. But we're going to get there today. Chapter 4 is what we have before us, and we're going to be walking through this passage. But Jesus is greater than Moses, Joshua, now Aaron, and any high priest who has come before. He performs their function, and he does it better. So let's look at this. The question is, what does a high priest do? Because if you're like me, you're like, we don't have any high priests. Does anybody have know a high priest out there? Probably not. Okay, if you do, I'm like, let's talk afterwards. Okay, um, but we're it's again we're landing on another planet. What is going on? What is a high priest? And so the author of Hebrews walks through this for us. You guys with me so far today? I feel like I'm just coming right out of the gate, and we're just gonna you can scribble down all things. I even have fill in the blanks today. On your, on, I know, it's, it's a rare day that I come to the fill-in-the-blank. I never want faith to be just a fill-in-the-blank thing, but sometimes it's helpful. So let's take a look. What do high priests do? Look at 5.1. 5.1. Hebrews says, look, every high priest chosen from among men or from among people is appointed to act on behalf of people in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. So one of the things that all priests do, and every year they would have, you would have, uh, you would have high priests that were from the lineage of Aaron, eventually from the lineage of Levi, that would be appointed within the nation of Israel to serve in the temple. So, for example, John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. We just came off the Christmas season. We didn't preach on this passage, but we have in the past. And one of the passages is he's chosen by lot as a as a Levite, someone with the lineage of a priest, to go into the temple on the day uh, to, to offer sacrifice or to burn incense in the holy place. And there he has a visitation from an angel, which is where you would expect if you've got, if heaven and earth meet in this meeting place, right, that's where the angels come and go, right? They come through the temple and they, and they go out into the world through there. But this idea that you would have these priests who were appointed, they were raised up, God would choose them and raise them up, and their job would be to mediate on behalf of the people. Not everyone could make it into the temple. Not everyone could make it into the holy place. And so the priests would be the one, not everyone could offer their own sacrifice. And so the priests would be the people who would mediate and offer their services in order to bring you who are far off, near to God through what my job would be as a priest, to offer gifts on your behalf to God or to offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, on your behalf to God. That's what the priests were to do. And thus, were to close the gap between you and your sin and where you were at and God in his holiness, priests would be able to close that gap. They were representatives. They were a stand-in for people in the presence of God. It goes on to say that high priests were just like the people they represented. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently. These are priests generally. High priests can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because they're ignorant and wayward. Because he himself is beset with weakness. Whatever the high priest, the high priest is like, hey, you, I'm helping you, and you're kind of a loser, but I'm kind of a loser too. 
I don't know if every high priest would think this, but they were beset with weakness. They, they wouldn't be able to look down on the people they represented because they had the same weakness. And so, look, I, I see you and I, I, I understand, but, and I will help you because I understand I have that same weakness. Look at 5.3. Because, because of this, he, the high priest, generally, high priest generally, are obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the people. So again, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, you're weak, I'm weak, and so I'm going to offer sacrifice for myself. I gotta deal with myself before I can mediate for you. And entering into the holy place before God was not always a happy-go-lucky thing. People went in with great fear and trembling. These sacrifices are gonna help, like, am I, it's been a bad year for me, like, I don't know what it's been like for you, you know, like, you walking in and you're trusting that these things are going to take care of it. So this is what high priests generally do, what Aaron was supposed to do. It says in 5.4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so high priests are called by God, raised up from among the people of God. And what Hebrews wants to do here, Hebrews wants to make it clear that Jesus is a high priest. And that Jesus is a high priest just like all other human high priests. But better in one way. Okay, that's, spoiler alert, he never sinned, right? Okay, that's the, that's the difference. That's the difference. And so um, before we get into kind of, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here, um, but what we're about to talk about, what, the rest of this passage, okay, what we're about to talk about is what we call um, Christology, okay? And some of you guys are already right now, your eyes are starting to roll back into your head, because we're, um, we're, it's, it's about Christology, which is the doctrine, your eyes are rolling further back into your head, right, about the person and work of Jesus. Christology is about the person and work of Jesus. Now, we're going to talk today about the person of Jesus. And as we work through this passage, there are no doubt a ton of questions. We go every week at our staff meeting, we, we talk through the passage that I'm preaching on this week. And as I came into the, to, to talk about it, I'm like, well, clearly the passage is about this. It, it, here's the deal. Jesus can sympathize with you. That's the point of the passage. But, there were, but all the questions were about, well, could Jesus, was he tempted? Could he have sinned? Like, all these side questions, there's a ton of questions that this passage brings up. There are a ton of questions. And so what, we, what we're talking about here is we're talking about Christology. Now, here's the deal. I've got like maybe 20, 20 more minutes to get this done for you guys. It took 500 years for the early Jesus movement to come up to some conclusions about what is the, what is the correct way to think about Jesus. So, or that, so um, they asked some really difficult questions about Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity and the relationship between his deity and his humanity. So in the year 325, there's the Council of Nicaea that came to some conclusions, and that is that the Bible teaches... At the Council of Nicaea, they decided and they, they recognized that the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully human. 
not 50-50, not half man, half God, fully man, fully God. Not mostly God, some man. Not mostly man, some God. Not 80-20, not any other, but fully God and fully man. Okay? And that that was a mystery, and that is a profound mystery. But that he was not created, he had all the attributes of deity, but he also had all the attributes of humanity. Whatever it is that makes him God, what makes God God, Jesus has. And whatever makes humans humans, Jesus has. And you're like, like, I don't know. And they were the same way. That was at 325. They're like, good, we got that settled. And then people started asking questions like, well, if Jesus is fully God and fully man, does he have does he have a mind, a divine mind and a human mind? Does he have a human mind and a human will? Is he one person or is he two persons? Like they started asking, and then they're like, okay, well, let's put our thinking caps back on and let's talk about this. And so it was at the Council of Chalcedon in 481. And at the Council of Chalcedon, they came to more conclusions. And though this is a profound mystery, it is this. Fully, Jesus is fully God, fully man. Some, look, thank you guys for sticking with me. We are in the weeds. I'll do a little podcast this week. There's a lot of stuff in here. Fully God, fully man. One person with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. Fully God, fully human. You cannot say there's something about God that he does not have. Fully human, you cannot say there's something about humanity that Jesus does not have. One unified person, you cannot say that there's, a, there, there's the divine Jesus and the human Jesus. There's one Jesus. But that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Is it all clear? No, it's not all clear. They, just, they said it's a mystery. We're going to put boundaries around the mystery just to know when you've walked off the reservation, right? If you start saying one of these things that isn't within the boundaries, then you're off the reservation. So here's the deal. Here's the deal, okay? I'm not going to go into the weeds through the Chalcedonian Creed or talk about the hypostatic union or the foibles of Arianism, Docetism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism. You guys get it. Look, I've got a whole Christology lecture for my undergrad theology class. I'll do it on the podcast, but here, not everybody wants that, and I get it. I don't even want it, right? I, I, <laughs> I was reading through this passage. I'm like, this is why I just love the Bible. It's sometimes systematic theology, like I don't know what to do with it totally, but there are some people who love systematic theology, but the, I, I would just rather say, what is this passage about? I, look, again, spoiler alert, Jesus can sympathize with you. Whatever they came to in 325 or 481, which they are correct, like it's Orthodox Christology, and it matters to me. But the point of this passage that I want to make sure that we get to today is that whatever you're feeling, whatever you felt, whatever temptations you are struggling with, Jesus can sympathize with you. I think more importantly, God thought it was important, super important, that you not feel alone in that. That God, that God said, man, that world has fallen, and what I really need to do is not just write those people off, I need to go down there and experience what it's like. 
I mean, far from God taking off and saying, look, they're on their own. They're a bunch of losers. Like, I, I, this is the second time I've called someone a loser from the divine perspective or from, anyway. Rather than just saying, look, write them off. He says, no, what I really need to do, what I really want to do is to just go down and understand what it is they're going through so that I can love them because I love them. I think we can get lost in all the creeds and the doctrines and whatnot, but we have to get in this passage, we have to understand the point here, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, what God is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, Jesus has come to try to understand what it is you are going through, to literally feel the sorts of things that you feel. And so I, I just want, I want to walk through this. It's, look, Christology is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think as we reflect on the person of Jesus, I don't want us to think about it as, as school or as a lecture. We need to think, I, I, I hope I, we need to, I hope what we can do today is think about this as worship. That there might be something, as we have sung about all these things about how awesome Jesus, Jesus, I love you. I pour out my heart to you. If there, there might be something in this passage that as we walk through today, that God wants to say, hey, I am, I'm with you right there. And I don't know what that is, but we would imagine that the Holy Spirit has something to say about this passage. So the question is this, how is it that Jesus can sympathize with us? When I, look, when, I, when you start talking about the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, as evangelicals, like as we, we're like, deity, deity. Jesus is the greatest. He's God, right? He is God. And, but when we, once we start talking about Jesus as is weak, like now we're, hey, you watch yourself there. Jesus is God. I'm like, yeah, he is God. But one of the things that we're going to see here is that Jesus was weak. You're like, you watch your mouth, Pastor Craig. I'm like, look, fully God, fully human, okay? Save, save the tomatoes for la later, okay? I'll run around, you can try to peg me. All right, hang on. Let's, let's see what, what is, how, how is it that Jesus can sympathize? Look at 4.15, and this is where we have our, fill, our little fill in the blanks, okay? So the first thing is this, Jesus knows what it's like to go through trial and temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to go through trial and and temptation. Look at 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now that word tempted is also the same word for trial, that Jesus has been tried, or that Jesus has been tempted. So it's also the same word for testing. Jesus has been tested, tempted, tried, like we are, and yet he has come through without sin. The reason why it says tempted is because probably the sin issue on the end. So we have all been tempted and sinned. Jesus has been tempted. And according to this, it says, in every way, in the same manner as us. Now, you might be like, when has Jesus ever experienced road rage? I'm like, okay, he never drove a car and if Jesus were alive, he would have been tempted way more because, you know, it's way harder. 
right? Like our lives are way harder than Jesus's life, okay? There, you didn't have online porn back in Jesus's day. You didn't have, you know, you didn't have automobiles for people to get angry at in Jesus's day. You didn't have friendships that went awry. Well, maybe they did. Like, or you didn't have people that wanted you to do, oh, maybe, like, on first glance, it's like, how could Jesus relate to what I am tempted by? But it's interesting, three of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he goes into the wilderness, into the desert, and he is tempted by the devil. The first temptation, you guys remember what it is? Jesus is fasting for 40 days, he's hungry, and the devil shows up and he says, hey, if you're the son of God, by the way, all the temptations in the book of Matthew all begin, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. And if you've ever been in the, in the desert in Israel, in the wilderness, there's a lot of stones. And it's like, wouldn't you, it would be awesome, a landscape of bread if after 40 days, right, of not eating. And so the temptation, he, and Jesus says man does not live on bread alone. It's so interesting, too, because Jesus quotes, he only quotes from like a two-chapter block, two block from the book of Deuteronomy to the devil. Like he only quotes, which means he was having his devotions in Deuteronomy before he went in the wilderness. There's lots of things he could have said, but because of his finite human brain, he could only memorize certain things. You're like, blasphemy, Pastor Craig? <laughs> okay, hang on. Just hang on, everybody, okay? So, these stones that be bread. Have you ever experienced something you thought you needed but didn't really need? Jesus experienced that in that moment. What kind of restraint did he have to show? He had to show restraint. He felt the pressure. He felt the tension of temptation. The second He's offered all the kingdoms of the world. This Satan shows him in a moment all the kingdoms of the world, which per, to me is like, I, it seems to me like, uh, yeah, anyway, we can, we'll, we'll talk about what can Satan do in your brain to show, like, there's something, he, he actually gets into Jesus' head and shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, they can all be yours. Has anybody ever experienced kind of the temptation to grab power for yourself, to take control over someone else's life or someone else, the fate of the world. I don't, have you ever felt the temptation? Not just the fate of the world, but the fate of your family or the fate of your grades or the fate of something that didn't belong to you. Jesus felt that. The crazy thing is he had the right to take all the kingdoms of the world, but it wasn't time. And so he felt the tension and he restrained the third temptation was Satan took him to the top of the temple and said, hey, throw yourself off, God will catch you. Has anybody else ever felt the temptation to use God for your own purposes? I want to enlist God to my cause. I want to enlist God to do what I want him to do. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. He felt the tension, though. Can you imagine the Son of God being tested by Satan, and he's like, all he could, all he needed to do was like, like, whatever he needed to say to Satan. I've got choice words for my own self, right? When Satan shows up, all he had to do was say that, and he'd be like, put him in his place. But he restrains himself. 
He is tested and tempted. And what we find out is that these, these are temptations that are common to humanity. It might not be road rage or online porn, but the, the ideas are right there. You know what the last temptation, the last time in the book of Matthew where someone says, if you are the son of God, it's when they're talking to him at his crucifixion, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross. It's the last temptation. While he hangs up there and he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? The temptation, I am, I am powerful. I am in control. Don't think otherwise. I can, even in his, the moments of his death, he restrains himself from being tested. I think sometimes we think he doesn't experience the weight of temptation like we do. But think about this. When you get tempted and you give in to that temptation, the force of that temptation ends. I feel this much pressure. I give in to the temptation. The pressure of the temptation ends because I give in to it. But think about Jesus. He feels the pressure of temptation and he never gives in. He feels more, he, he's felt more pressure of temptation than we might imagine. So all that to say, Jesus knows what it's like to go through trial and temptation. Second thing, second thing is this. Jesus participates in the human experience having limitations and weakness. Jesus participates in the human experience having limitations and weakness. Look at 4.15. 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. In 5.2, it talks about the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since they themselves are beset with weakness. Jesus is just like a high priest. He is beset with weakness. I think it's so interesting. In chapter 12, it talks about we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Like in chapter 12, we want to be encouraged, so it says we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. That verb is the same verb that's used here. In other words, we are beset with a great cloud of witnesses while Jesus is beset with weakness. Jesus is chosen to experience weakness and limitations. Jesus was born, like think about his fully human. Jesus was born. Jesus had a mom. Jesus had a mom. Jesus grew. Jesus learned. You're like, shut your mouth, Pastor Craig. Jesus learned. You don't th- he didn't just come out of the womb and say, shalom, laheim. Right? No. He grew. He, like one of the things I say is, when we sing the Christmas carols, and uh, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. Uh, what is it? Away in a manger. What's the second verse? The point is, no crying he made. The, oh, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Why not? Like, where is away in a manger canonical? Like, it's wrong. It's actually wrong. It's what we call docetism, that he only seemed or appeared to be human. Like, why would he not cry? Babies, human babies cry. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to memorize verses. It wasn't like he was just like, download, you know, I memorized the whole Bible, 
No, he was a human. He was beset with limitation. I think this is where you get into how does divinity and humanity work. It's called the hypostatic union. I think the idea that his taking on, being divine and being incarnate, he takes on humanity, which veils his divine attributes, like omniscience and omnipresence. Like he can't be all places at one time. He can only be in one place at one time, which is why when you overbook your schedule, you're trying to be God. I'm just kidding. That's, that's me. Like, you want to be in two places at one time. Only God can do that. Jesus himself wouldn't even do that. He couldn't even do it because he chose to bring on limitations. He got tired. He was hungry. I remember being in a Bible study one time, and we were talking about this, and I was kind of putting the foot on the gas on Jesus' humanity, kind of like I am now, making people uncomfortable. And um, and I said, and Jesus was hungry. And, and one, of the, one of the people in the Bible said, he says, it says that Jesus ate, but it never says that he was hungry. Now, all that to say, like, that was wrong because in, in Luke 4.2, it says that Jesus was hungry. So, okay. But you think about, you think about what's the impetus? Like, I don't want you to, di- I don't want you to diminish Jesus. Don't diminish my Jesus, his divinity. But here's the thing. There's a beauty that Jesus was hungry because he can sympathize. Everything that it is about being human, he took on. And what it does is it obscured the majesty, the glory. It was like an eclipse over the glory. And there were things that we could see about Jesus, about God, that we couldn't see in all of his glory. We couldn't always see his compassion. In the blazing glory of who God is, it's harder to see his compassion. It's harder to see that God has turned his kingdom upside down. It's those who serve. It's those who are the last that are the first. Because sometimes in the blazing glory of God, we can't see that. But Jesus in his humanity shows it to us that God self-empties that the greatest power in all of the universe is self-emptying love. Jesus, who had, it was in the form of God, did not re- think of equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself. In the made in the form of a human, in the form of a servant, died a death, not just a death, but death on a cross. That's the mind of God. He entrusts himself to his Father, who then highly exalts him. And we are asked we think that's kind of a loser form of humanity. Like he's just losing, 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 losing. But what God says is the path to exaltation is the path of humility. And we don't, just, we don't see that if we just have a triumphant Jesus, a human Jesus beset with limitations and weakness shows us the heart of God. It also says, uh, next one, Jesus prayed like you pray. Look at 5.7. In 5.7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed like you pray. In the days of his flesh, that is, before, before his Exalt his resurrection and ascension to the throne of God. He prayed 
like you pray. He taught us to pray. Remember the Lord's Prayer? It was wonderful on Christmas Day. I remember I got my 8 a.m. reminder to pray the Lord's Prayer every day until Christmas, right? That was the challenge. The only reason I know that prayer is because Jesus prayed that prayer. He prayed like we pray. But we also think about what it says here with loud cries and tears. When did he do that? We could think maybe the raising of Lazarus was an example where Jesus cried out to God with loud cries and it says that Jesus wept. Man, if you've ever shed a tear in prayer, Jesus was there before. Maybe the Garden of Gethsemane. Loud cries, Abba, Father. If you've ever cried out to your heavenly Father, Jesus has been there. Maybe on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever wondered if God was going to come through and had to just trust Jesus has been there. He cried out to the one able to save him. Jesus prayed like you prayed. So Jesus knows what it's like to go through trial and temptation. Jesus participates in the human experience of having limitations and weakness. Jesus prayed like you prayed. And then finally in 5.8, Jesus experienced the pain of suffering. 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. To, okay, Jesus learned. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus experienced the pain of suffering. I think we think about on the cross, Jesus suffered but we oftentimes don't think his entire human experience might have been beset with suffering. Certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think the, wonder, the interesting thing about the Garden of Gethsemane, this is how human Jesus was and still is. The idea is that he is still human. He's the, he's, he's the, he, he has been resurrected and he is now a glorified human. He is what we will one day be. Not that we're going to become God, but our humanity is going to be redeemed. And he's the first fruits of that, okay? Um, but this is how human Jesus was on this earth. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's got 12 disciples, and he says, he says to the three closest friends, I gotta go over here to pray. Would you come with me? And would you pray with me? And he prays, Father, Father, take this cup from me. They fall asleep. And he says, wake up, wake up. This is how human is and how human If you were there in the Garden of Gethsemane with him, you could have comforted him. You, in Jesus' darkest moment, if you were to just come up and put your hand on his shoulder, you would have comforted him. And that's why he brought his best friends he knows what he's going through. I need to be surrounded with people. I need to be supported. That's how human he is. That is how much he experienced the dark weakness of humanity. 
so vulnerable. And he chose to do it. Why? Because God wanted to know what his people were experiencing. And he wanted his people to know that he is with them. There's no place you have gone or will go that God will not find you and be there and be there for you. There's nothing you will feel or experience that Jesus will not come alongside and say, I see you, I know you, I love you. I have walked down that road as well. Not to diminish your suffering. It's not like we're taking, like, it's mine is, I can't feel anything because mine's way less than his. No, he just wants to know, he wants you to know, I see you in that, and I recognize how difficult that is. What's the, what's the punchline? 416, what's the punchline of all this? In 416 it says, well in 414, since we have this kind of a high priest, 416, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. If this next movement is a high priest going into the presence of the holy of holies, into the presence of God, what the author of Hebrews is saying, you stay right on Jesus' hip as he goes in as a high priest. You can go in with confidence with him into the presence of God. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't think I can say this enough. Based on your faith in Jesus, when you come, look, when you come to God, God rejoices that you come to him. I recognize that we can all feel guilt and we can feel shame for the things that we've done or had done to us in the past. And we can sometimes, that can be a barrier. I just want to say this one more time. God rejoices when you come to him. Based on what Jesus has accomplished, you can go in right behind Jesus. Jesus is like, no, come, come. The Father wants you in, wants you to come. He's not pushing you away. Come. Mercy. We deserve something, we don't get it. That's mercy. Grace. We get favor that we have not earned and cannot earn. And then it says grace to help in time of need. It's an interesting translation. What it, what it says in Greek is we get mercy and grace and well-timed help. Help at just the right time. It always reminds me of Romans chapter 5 that talks about Christ died for sinners at just the right time. Why is it just the right time? Because it's in the, in the, in the middle of your worst sin, God says, that's the moment I need them to know that I love them. Not when they get cleaned up. Not when they get cleaned up. Not when they get it all right. In the moment of the word, while you're still sinners, Christ died for you. While you were God's enemy, that's when he sent his son. Like, who would do that? While we were weak, 
That's the right time. Well-timed help. And so again, rather than this being bland Christology, this is, hopefully this is worship. Maybe there's something that we, that we, we said about what Jesus has offered, what Jesus is in his humanity, that you're like, that, I need to know that about Jesus, how he sees me, what he's experienced, I need to know that. 